News Radio 92.3. It's the Pensacola Expert Panel. Good morning. I'm Jan Casey, and I'm here with Terry Gross of Gross and Schuster. Good morning, Terry. Uh, good morning. I am excited to hear about what you're going to share with us today. It's always good. And I do want to compliment you. I, I, that intro music's better than last week. <laughs> That's more in, in my. I genre. know it. I knew it. I said that is Terry. Right. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, most of you know, I probably don't have to introduce myself, but I've been a local lawyer for only 44 years now. And we specialize in personal injury. We have five offices throughout the Panhandle, Pensacola, Milton, Crestview, Mary Esther, and Navarre. I'm in practice with my three sons, two biological sons and my son-in-law. And uh, we all handle personal injury. And if you wish to call us, 850-434-3333. I love callers. I really do. Uh, a lot of times we don't get them, so I just get on the uh, soapbox and preach. But um, if someone wanted to text us or call today, how could they do that? 850-437-1620. And we're right here and... Terry is ready to answer any questions, concerns that you have. 850-437-1620. Well, good. So uh, today I want to go over a topic I don't believe I've discussed before, but I want to talk about the term vicarious liability. Vicarious liability. Some of you know what it means. Some of you really don't. Some sort of think you do. But simply put, my definition is when the law holds someone liable for negligence, even though they did nothing wrong. So when you first hear that, wait a second, we're going to hold somebody liable that did nothing wrong? That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound right. But it is the law in several areas. So let's discuss those areas. Probably the first thing I learned as a young lawyer was something called Florida's Dangerous Instrumentality Doctrine. And it relates to cars primarily. And what it says is that if I loan Jan my car, she messes up, she runs a stop sign, she causes a wreck, I'm at fault first. So if I have a big insurance policy, her insurance may never pay a nickel if we're sued because the first line of defense is the owner's vehicle. So they deemed a long time ago that that cars are dangerous. They can cause death. They can cause injury. The owner is responsible first. So just something to think when you be, you're being a good-hearted person loaning your car out. Not loan my car out, but... I have good insurance, but I also understand that once you let the other person drive, yeah. if they mess up, the laws can say you are at fault, whether they're a friend or relative or whoever it may be. Um, that's what the law is, the dangerous instrumentality doctrine. That's just one example. Now, there are exceptions. Every law's got exceptions. <clears throat> You're sitting at a red light. You get carjacked. They throw you out of the car and take off. And then they cause a wreck. Are you liable? Of course not. That's a criminal uh, interference, uh, intervening uh, criminal uh, tort of, of sorts. Uh, and you would not be held liable. But if you leave your keys in the ignition 
and someone steals your car, you may be liable under Florida law. So uh, there's a shop rule exception. If you take you drop your car to shop to be fixed, and they take it for a test drive uh, afterwards and cause a wreck, well, of course you're not liable. You gave up your car to be fixed, and they've acknowledged that. So it's it's a reasonable law, but with a few exceptions. But by and large, the owner of a car is liable. Uh, the next area that we commonly see where there is vicarious liability, where there's liability for someone who did no wrong is called respondent superior. It's Latin. It's been around forever. And it basically says the employer, are you taking notes? You going to go to school? It's okay. Take your notes. I go to uh, school every time you're here. All right. Okay. That's, it's how I remember things. Good. Good thing. But anyway, so the owner is liable for the acts of the employee. The radio station sends Jan out on an errand to get a new uh, set of uh, headphones. <clears throat> she runs a stop sign. Uh, the station's at fault. The station will be on the hook first before her. The The employer is responsible for the acts of the employee. Once again, there's exceptions. What if the employee goes outside the scope of their employment? So they send her out for some new headphones. And she decides, well, you know, nobody's really tracking my time. They're busy. I think I'm going to stop. It's a Friday. I'm going to have a couple of drinks. Who will ever know? She has a couple of drinks. Well, these are just examples, just scenarios. All I have to give a scenario. And and she causes a wreck after a few drinks. Well, I think she exceeded the scope of her employment. They didn't send her out to drink. They sent her out just to get some new headphones uh, for a guest like me. So uh, the, and what's interesting about this is as a lawyer, we always are thinking in those terms because by and large, what if you get someone that is seriously injured in a wreck? Of course, the investigating officer, usually a highway patrolman, is going to fill out an accident report. But the highway patrolman is not a lawyer. He's a police officer. And when he fills out his report, He's going to certainly take the driver's name, their driver's license. We know their date of birth. We know their residence, uh, who who owned the vehicle, all that. But what they don't put on the report, never. They're never going to put, who were you working for at the time? Were you in the scope of your employment? That's not a question they ask. So you could have someone, like I say, I send my receptionist out for an errand, a bank run, and she messes up. She spaces out and causes a wreck, injures somebody badly. Well, the lawyer that catches that case is going to see my receptionist's name, her car insurance, her car, whatever. My name's not going to be anywhere to be seen. And what if my receptionist, to no surprise, doesn't have a lot of coverage? After all, she's not a multimillionaire. Otherwise, otherwise she wouldn't be my receptionist. So right. she's got modest coverage like most people do, and you got serious injuries. Some lawyers would say, well, I'm sorry, injured person, but that's all we can get. I'm so sorry. They only have a 10 limit. 
uh, th- this lady and, and whatever. Well, a good lawyer, what they would do is when they find out that there's not much insurance, they, they send an affidavit to that insurance adjuster saying, before we even think about releasing your insured, we want them to fill out this affidavit. And that affidavit will set, ask questions like, was your driver in the scope of employment? And I've, I'll give you two great examples. Uh, Ten years ago, I got a retired Air Force fella riding his bike on the bike path in Gulf Breeze and a little girl driving a jalopy type of old car takes a quick turn, runs him over, and he ends up in back surgery. Well, the little girl only had a 10,000 limit, which was not didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. But she was turning into the bike path into a tire store, so I went and sent the affidavit in. Was this little girl... 19, 20 years old, wherever she was, was she in the scope of her employment? And they came back, uh, yeah, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Aha, respondent superior. I had a multi-million dollar claim against O'Reilly Auto Parts. Uh, and we proceeded in that direction. In fact, that given year, I ended up uh, bringing claims against O'Reilly on two different occasions, two different clients, both but O'Reilly Auto Parts was never mentioned on the accident report. If you gleaned and looked, you'd never see them because that's just not a question that a police officer is going to ask when investigating an accident. It's up to the lawyer to do due diligence and find that out. And I'm, I'm afraid there are lawyers that don't do that and commiss a, a deep-pocket defendant unknowingly. And, and tell some poor soul that, well, this is all you can get. We're sorry. And meanwhile, there could be a boatload of coverage out there that would help them. I had another case where my person was rear-ended by a young man driving like a beat-up van. And the only thing, I did get a clue from my client. She goes, we did get out of the car afterwards and take some pictures. And I noticed that the back of this young man's van was just filled with luggage which I thought was an odd thing. Well, I do the affidavit, and guess what? This uh, He was an independent contractor. He was the kid that returns your luggage to you when he goes missing at the airport. You come in the airlines, and you wait, and your luggage never shows up. And they say, well, we'll wow. try to get it to you, and six hours later, it's delivered to your house. He was the kid that was some independent contractor in his own van that was hired by whoever, the airport, Delta, whoever it was, to uh, return your luggage. Uh, but you would never know that without the mm-hmm. affidavit. And, uh, and so it's, it's helped us more than you would know. Uh, because a lot of times people are driving and they are on the clock for some type of business. So that's, that's another um, rule of law where, where someone can be held uh, liable. Now, an interesting one, this goes against the grain. Here's one, a form of vicarious liability that is actually the opposite of what most people think. I think most people think that if you have minor children and they mess up, I'm the parent, I guess I'm responsible Mm -hmm. for my child. Most people think that. Wrong. That's not the law. The law since uh, 1950s, uh, there was a Supreme Court decision, the Goodall Goodall case, I think it's G-O-O-D-I-L-L, the Goodall case. What the Goodall case said 
was that parents are not automatically liable for the acts of the minor children, and they established four different exceptions where a parent would be held liable. One was entrusting the child with a dangerous instrumentality. Well, that could be a car, I guess. It could be a weapon. I actually had a lawsuit. Uh, I've talked about it maybe in the past where I represented a, a fellow that was shot in the head by a 17-year-old uh, perp, and the perp had received the pistol for his 17th birthday from his parents. And my argument was that they entrusted a dangerous instrumentality with a 17-year-old, uh, and uh, I won on that case. I got it to court, and we got a judgment, and, and we, we were able to be victorious because they entrusted the child with a dangerous instrumentality. I had another case where it was um, out around Blunston, and it was this family property, hundreds and hundreds of acres. And it was one family. They didn't lease it for hunting, but the, the family members would hunt. And so this young man is out there hunting on this property. He sees the bushes rustle. I mean, he can see the movement of the bushes. He presumes that it's a deer and shoots. Well, it happened to be one of his distant cousins that he didn't know was also hunting at that time, and he shot his own distant cousin. And uh, the kid that did the shooting was a minor. I think he was 16 or 17, and we uh, successfully sued the homeowners uh, for the child, saying that the parents entrusted him uh, with a rifle, a dangerous instrumentality. I'm not against young teenage kids hunting, but you got to understand if you supplied them with a weapon, you've you've supplied this minor uh, with uh, a, a dangerous instrumentality, and therefore we held them liable. Now, did we get a call where that was not related? That was just your boyfriend just saying what time you're coming home tonight? Or? Yes. Okay. Thank you for uh, outing me, Terry. Uh, uh, all right. It actually was a question. I did ask her to text it so I could respond like that. All right. All right. But I, I can tell you the question. Sure. She wanted to know about the statutes of limitations because of a plumbing situation that uh, wasn't done correctly. And she wanted to know, is there a limit of a time that she could take action against that company? Yeah, that's interesting. That's that that's a little bit interesting. So what you have to understand, statute of limitations in Florida, there's probably 10 different statute of limitations. So it's not just one statute of limitations. Uh, they just modified... Uh, the tort, I'm a tort lawyer. That means personal injury. So personal injury cases have always been four years my entire career. They just moved it to two years last March. So we now have a two-year statute of limitations on torts. But if you have a plumbing situation where you paid a plumber to do a job and it wasn't done correctly, when you pay them, you may or may not sign something. You may or may not. I would still call that a contract. And you could have oral contracts. So plumbers, you probably, they may give you a quote. They may not give you a quote. You may sign something. You may not. Depends on the plumber. Most of them are not that business-like. I mean, in other words, they may give you an oral quote on the phone. House calls are 150 and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if it's contractual, it's a five-year statute of limitations for contracts in Florida. It sounds like that would probably fall into that. 
Um, but remember, if, if some judge were to deem, well, that's more of a tort, that's more of a civil matter, it's two years. So um, uh, that, those are my thoughts. But the, the longer you wait, usually the worse things get. So even though you got statute of limitations, those are the latest you could file a lawsuit. But, but even like on an injury case, if you got injured in a car wreck under the old law, the four-year statute, and you didn't get a lawyer and you come to me three and a half years later, there's not many lawyers that are going to accept that case. If it's three and a half years and you, you haven't had a lawyer, most people don't want to accept a case right before the statute runs. You don't know the case. You don't have time to get records. You know nothing about this person. And, and, and so forth. So you shouldn't procrastinate. You shouldn't wait to the last minute. Uh, with these plumbing situations or smaller bills, we do have a county court uh, and summary claims. You go to the court, like, for instance, you go right down the MC Blanchard downtown if you're in Escambia County, and they have a window. You get in the courthouse, go through security now, but you get to the window. There will be a clerk of the court's window, they probably have a small claims window. They have the forms. You plug in the amount. How much are you suing for? Uh, $3,000. And then they you had to pay. bring your checkbook because you got to pay to file suit and the cost of serving the defendant. But then you could represent yourself on these matters for, for smaller matters because you can't really afford a lawyer if you're suing for yeah. anything under 10000 There's not a lawyer that would take it. And anything, if it's 15000 maybe a young lawyer would uh, because oftentimes the, the fees could exceed the amount in controversy. But getting back to this, uh, my topic then, I'm glad we took the call. I don't mind doing a segue, but and then we got a few minutes left uh, uh, on this. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is, it, and it's this sort of runs contrary to uh, what we may think the law is, and I'm not going to use you because you're tired of me using you. I don't mind. I'm, so I'll ahead. take my dear friend, Jeff Wayne. So so my my dear friend, Jeff Wayne, he's in a funk about something. He's really depressed about something. He's mad about something. And uh, he goes to a local pub and, and he drinks too much. And he's obviously getting intoxicated. The bartender is more than willing to keep on serving the drinks to him. He stumbles out and drives the car and ultimately causes severe injury to some unsuspecting poor soul because he's, you know, he's been hit by a drunken driver. So common sense would say, well, we should be able to hold this bar at fault because they, they normally serve this. He was obviously, mm -hmm. I mean, after 12 shots of liquor, uh, this guy could barely walk out and they didn't, they didn't call a cab. They didn't try to take his keys. They kept on serving him. Certainly this bar must be at fault. That's not the law, and it must be their lobby because ever since I've been a lawyer, we've had a Dram Shop uh, Act in effect in Florida that basically says bar owners are not liable for serving too much alcohol to patrons. I guess they figure that opened up the window to, you know, who's drunk yeah. and who's not drunk, and you're forcing the uh, bartender to become uh, like a, a deputy or something or <clears throat> whatever, but... Um, but what, as with all laws, there are exceptions. And the exception to that one is you can pursue the bar if you can prove that they served a known alcoholic. Think about that. I know not. So if, if Jeff had just come there the first time, 
They never laid eyes on him. How do you know he's a known alcoholic? Maybe this was just a bad day. Maybe he seldom drinks, and this is just yeah. one bad day where he, he drank too much. <clears throat> but uh, what we do, then you say, well, how can you prove that? What I like to do when I get those cases is I the first thing I do is I subpoena the credit card statements of the drunk. And there can be a paper trail. So if I could show that he's been at the same bar and he goes three times a week and spends $60, 70 $80 a week there, I think the bar is unnoticed that, that they're serving a known alcoholic. This is not just somebody having a, a bad day uh, or whatever. Uh, so these are just some novel uh, examples of vicarious liability, liability where the law is holding someone that doesn't appear to be at fault liable, whether it be the uh, owner of a vehicle, whether it be your employer, whether it be a, a parent with some few carved out exceptions, or even a bar if you could reach that high standard of proof. I see that we are quickly, quickly running out of time. We always do. I wish I had more time on this show. This is Terrence Gross. Uh, I am actually about to celebrate 44 years of practice. Uh, come October 24th, I'm proud to say I do have my three uh, law partners, uh, my two sons and my son-in-law. They all practice personal injury. We'll meet you face-to-face in Pensacola, Milton, Crestview, Mary Esther, or Navarre, since we do have five offices we're local, and we all practice law. Even myself, sometimes people ask me, are you retired or do you just do radio? No, I, I actually practice, have my own caseload, go to court, and so forth. We're more than happy to help you. Call us at 850-434-3333 or visit us on the web at grossandschuster.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Terry Gross. And, yes, I do take notes because you are a plethora of wealth of information about things that most of us don't know about. So thank you so much for being here. It's the Pensacola Expert Panel News Radio 92.3. We're always informative, local, and dependable. And we will see you tomorrow. Y'all have a great, beautiful Wednesday.